Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb, and it's such a great time right now for Super 70 Sports. We're about to reach 100,000 followers on Twitter which I can tell you two years ago would have been absolutely unthinkable to me. But thanks to you guys and the passion that you have for old school sports, it's a reality. And so I'm continuing to line up what I think are some really terrific guests over the coming weeks and months. And I most of all just want to say thank you to each and every one of you who follow me on Twitter, who listen to the podcast, and who so enthusiastically support what we do. Without you guys, it would absolutely not be possible. I say it all the time, but I have the best audience anywhere on social media. I really believe that. And without you guys, there is no Super 70 Sports. So thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart. My guest today is one of my favorite baseball players of the 1980s and 90s era. A guy who, in addition to being a terrific pitcher has one of the most compelling stories, I think, of any professional athlete really in the history of sports. He's a gold medal winner at the 1988 Olympics, an 18-game winner for the 1991 California Angels, and the author of a no-hitter in 1993 as a member of the New York Yankees. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Jim Abbott. Jim, how are you? I'm doing great, Ricky. Glad to Glad to be here with you, man. I'm looking forward to this. Man, I, I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And this one is really kind of fun for me because we sort of hooked up to, to schedule this in a, a, a bit of a strange way. I made a tweet. Mike Scott, as a lot of my listeners are going to remember, uh, clinched the National League West in, in 86 for the Astros with a no-hitter. And so I tweeted out a photo of Mike uh, leaping in the air for joy, and I think Glenn Davis and Bill Doran were coming out to the mound to celebrate with them. And I think the tweet was, uh, when, when coach says you can get Dairy Queen after the game. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, yeah, I'm not bad. That's a, it's a B-plus tweet, probably. <laughs> but you tweeted back, you actually retweeted it and said, or oh, when you see the beer cart on the back nine which uh, is also a pretty solid B-plus tweet. And I, and I retweeted you, uh, and uh, you, you tweeted back at me later that you were actually out playing golf with Mike Scott at the time, oddly enough. Yeah, it was just coincidental, and, and uh, I saw your tweets. I'm a big follower of, of your feed, and, and uh, I know Mike's on Twitter a little bit, not a lot, and, and uh, he, he always kind of asked me about it, and he's inquiring about it. I said, hey, Mike, you have to see this tweet. It's of you, actually. And, and it was literally the same day. And we got a good chuckle out of that. And, uh, afterwards, he told me, oh, he said, hey, please send that to me. I want to see it. And I want to show my wife and everything. So my retweet of the, <laughs> the beer cart was kind of my way of sending it to Mike and a little bit of an inside joke because if you know Mike now, he does get very excited to see the beer cart on the back now. <laughs> he did the same way he did for that no-hitter. <laughs> did he get his high in the air no. on the beer cart? Okay. <laughs> no, he doesn't uh, He doesn't get very far off the ground these days, but uh, he's a heck of a golfer and a good friend and a great guy, and uh, we both were laughing really hard when we saw that. Well, when you told me that he, that he found it funny, I kind of breathed a sigh of relief. You, you never know if... People don't know the account. You follow the account, so you kind of get what I do. But, uh, you know, I'm glad Mike Scott wasn't like, you know, who's this guy? I'm going to have to dust him or something, you know. Oh, he's got a great sense of humor. And I've actually turned your account on to a bunch of people. I was with Kirk McCaskill the other day, and same thing. I said, Mac, you got to see this. And he was he literally had tears in his eyes in a couple of the tweets. It's fun kind of knowing some of the people in the, in the you know, that you tweet about. I mean, I guess we're kind of of the age to have played with a few of those people. And, um you know, it's just a great sport. Social media, uh, you know, I have two daughters, so sometimes I'm, you know, one of those old guys railing against social media. But there's a lot of fun stuff involved in it, too, and, and you're, you're, uh, it's definitely a highlight of my day. 
Well, thanks, man. I greatly appreciate that. I, you know, I, I want to go back and go through your career and maybe touch on some things. Hopefully, if I'm successful, I'll ask you a few questions that maybe you haven't been asked a million times. But I, I want to go back to your your days as a as a prep pitcher there in Flint, Michigan, and. You know, your story is so compelling. I just read your book, Imperfect, which I highly recommend, a book that uh, I believe it was Tim Brown that uh, that wrote that book with you. And I want to say, did, did, that, did that come out in 2012 or, or thereabouts, Jim? Yeah, yep, yep, came out in 2012. And uh, Tim was a, was a great collaborator, great partner. Um, he, he writes for Yahoo, covers baseball, was out here covering uh baseball for the, for the LA Times uh, before he moved over to Yahoo and, and uh, we'd known each other for a long time and, and uh, you know it's a pretty personal journey when you when you sit down and write a book you really kind of expose yourself to good times and bad and, and uh, you need someone you trust you need, you need someone to you know there isn't there wasn't any judgment on Tim's part and, and uh, it ended up being a, a really cool project and, and very proud of it it's a book that I would highly recommend to all of my listeners. One of the one of the better autobiographies that I've read in any genre. I mean, I, I would say one of the best baseball autobiographies, but it's just a solid autobiography, period. And and you do touch. I mean, it's such a personal story because you're going through this journey that you went on that that really you are you're one of very few men who have gone down the path that that you've traveled and it's intensely personal in places and also very poignant and and kind of going along with that theme i i want to go back to to high school with you there in flint pitching for flint central where you were uh not only an outstanding uh baseball player but a lot of people probably don't know you were also a quarterback and a punter on the football team a multi-sport guy I suppose what I'm most interested in is when did you realize that, hey, not only am I a pretty dominant athlete at this level who has a future beyond high school as a baseball player, but when did you also realize that the fact that your story, being born with one hand, that story was going to become sort of a national phenomenon as well as the attention that you were getting for your feats on the field? For me, it was always a one-step process. You know, I, I uh, as you said, I was, you know, I was born differently. I was born missing my right hand, and, and um, I grew up in a tough town. I grew up in Flint, Michigan, uh, tough to this day. You know, and and um, But I'm really thankful for where I grew up. You know, there was, you had to kind of earn your way, you know, and, and, if you were good enough, if you could play sports in Flint, if you could come out to the gym and play basketball or play baseball, you know, people people gave you an opening. People allowed you in. And so that's how I fought my way, you know, up. And, and it really wasn't – I had dreams of playing, I guess, Major League Baseball, but they seemed very far removed from where I grew up. And, and uh, for me, it was just, you know, I wanted to make the Little League team. You know, and then I wanted to make the junior high school team, and and, and I and I looked up at those high school players with the varsity jackets, and I wanted to be them. And um, it really, you know, and and then I had a chance to play at the University of Michigan, which was a dream come true for me. And and then I played on the United States teams while I was in college too. I played the Olympic team, played the Pan American team, and really it wasn't until I got to those USA teams and competing against you know some of the best amateur players in the country playing with those guys like Robin Ventura and Tino Martinez, you know, playing in all over the world, uh, Cuba, Italy, Japan, playing Seoul and the Olympics. Uh, that's when I really kind of felt like, you know, hey, mate, I might be able to play with the very best players in the game. You know, I might have a chance to play professionally. So, um, you know, all of those experiences uh, were really cool and it seems to go really fast at the time and um, and, and that's why I felt you know inspired to write a book to sort of capture all of that because uh, it was it was a pretty crazy journey and I felt blessed and humbled and and I just wanted to share it as much for my own family my own children as for anybody else and you mentioned the the amateur career there obviously at the uh, University of Michigan you were, you were the Big Ten player of the year and not just the, and that's not just baseball player you were the Big Ten athlete of the year right 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there must have been slim pickings in the Big Ten that year. <laughs> well, you know, I hear they play some pretty uh, good football there, so I think the competition's not that slim. In 87, you win the Golden Spikes Award as the best amateur baseball player in the country. As you mentioned, Pan Am team in 87, 88 Olympic team. You're, you're modest enough not to mention that you, you, you happen to get the last out for the gold medal. I mean, we probably don't want to bury that story here in the podcast. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, honestly, it was an amazing run. And, and it, like I said, it was happening so fast. I mean, these different experiences to play in Cuba, you know, and and uh, I, I just really cherish every little bit of it. I mean... You uh, met Castro, right? I met Castro. We were the first American team in 1987 to play in Cuba in 25 years. And, and uh, you know, there were there was real open animosity between the two countries. Um, it was seen as a little bit of a diplomatic trip, but, but also, you know, the Cubans, it's, it's hard to overstate how much a part of the culture baseball plays for the Cuban people. I mean, they love it. They, you know, our first game, we were college sophomores and juniors and, and we went up against 50, you know, the Cuban team all dressed in red, head to toe. Uh, 50,000 people in the stands, music makers, drums, army, people with machine guns. I mean, and Fidel Castro sitting there. I mean, it was, an, it was just an, an unbelievable experience. And, and, and baseball, you know, uh, it, it's just hard to, it's hard to describe how much it means, you know, across the world. And to be able to participate in those kinds of venues and in that, that, that high level, um, it was pretty neat. And I, I'm really thankful for all of that. How good was that Cuban team? Because people talk so much about how terrific some of those Cuban teams were and guys who very likely would have been, you know, very good players in the major leagues, but because of the international relations that just wasn't going to be in the cards for them. How good were those were those guys when you faced them? They were very very good. Um they had a I mean, I, I would cringe a little bit thinking about facing those guys now with aluminum bats. <laughs> you know, we were, like I said, in our, you know, 20, 21 years old, a lot of us. Um, and, you know, some of those guys on that team were, were 28, 29 years old. And you're right, none of the Cubans at that point were were making their way off the island and coming over to play in the major league. So we were playing the best that they had to offer. They had a, they had a third baseman um, and a guy named Omar Linares. Um, was as good a baseball player as I ever saw. I mean, a five-tool guy, power, average, arm, uh, defense. He was he was absolutely incredible. He was the exact same age that, that I was and that a lot of the guys on our team was, so he was young at the time. He had a batting stance a little bit like Julio Franco. You know, he kind of had that extended front leg, and the, the bat kind of cocked a little bit towards the pitcher, but, man, he he could kill the ball and uh, I understand he's still coaching in Cuba now I think he might be a manager for one of their teams and a big star but uh, the, the professional scouts that used to come and watch us play uh, you know just salivated over his ability and, and I think he would have been a you know a, a very very high first round draft pick if he would play there so uh, they were phenomenal I mean they were really good and we had some great battles with them and uh, I, I cherish that rivalry. How much does winning the Olympics mean to you as, as you look back on it? It's crazy to think it, but it's been almost 30 years ago now. As you look back on that with that much water under the bridge since then, where does that rank in your achievements? Well, it's, it's, it's you know, one of the proudest moments. I, I don't know if I can't differentiate, you know, that from, say, a no-hitter. You know, they're just... There, there, there's just such joy in it and such ecstasy, you know. Um, the, the, the Olympics was was such a team accomplishment, though. We, you know, we had 25 guys on that team. We were all amateur players. Um, it was college age kids because they weren't, you know. We had, a lot of us had signed had signed professional contracts, but you couldn't take any money yet, and if you were going to play in the Olympics, so um, you know, we were in this. The beautiful little time between college and professional baseball, and we were competing for our country, and, and um, it really was beautiful. It was it was it was so much fun, um, and and to be out there in that ninth inning, um, there was a little history to it too because we had 
lost to the Cubans. We played the Cuban team in Italy for the World Championships, and we lost an incredibly heartbreaking game. Uh, I think the score was two to one, and um, we had a little bit because of a high throw from uh, Robin Ventura to Tino Martinez at third base. He threw it high. Tino caught it, tagged the Cuban guy, but the Italian umpire called him safe. And that eventually became the run that, that beat us. And fast forward a few weeks later at the Olympics, I was out there again on the ninth inning. And uh, the first batter of the inning, the, uh, we played Japan, ground ball to Robin at third base. He threw the ball high again. Tino jumped up and, and caught it, tagged the Japanese runner out, but it was a close play and, you know, it was a big sigh of relief. So we're two outs away. Next, next pitch, literally, ground ball to Robin again. Robin takes it, he throws it across the uh, field, and again it's high. It's a little bit lower than the last one, but still high. Tino has to jump, <laughs> tags the guy out again. And then the next pitch, a Japanese hitter again, ground ball to Robin, and our, our shortstop, a real good player named Dave Silvestri from Missouri, He's just screaming at Robin in, in words I don't even want to repeat for you right now. <laughs> hit him in the hit him in the chest. Hit him in the. I could hear him screaming at him. And Robin threw a bullet across the infield, and, and we got that twenty seventh out, and, and it was just you know elation. You know we just jam piled on that mound and, and uh, flew home to our respective professional careers, and, and it was just you know something you'll cherish your whole life. Well, obviously, the decision to go to college worked out well for you. You did get drafted, however, out of high school late in the in the draft by the uh, Blue Jays, and you, you opted to go on to Michigan. Was that a close call for you, or was it something that you didn't really give that much consideration to? I, you know, the Blue Jays were... Um, I was drafted pretty low. I was a 36-round draft pick, um, but I became really close with uh, the scout that they had, a man named Don Wilkie. Um, and I flew to Toronto. I met Pat Gillick, uh, who was the uh, general manager at the time. Bobby Cox was with that organization at the time. And, and they put a pretty serious play on. You know, they didn't offer me a, a ton of money, but it was a lot of money back then. And uh, But the University of Michigan, you know, it, it offered me a chance to grow up, and, and both as a both as a baseball player and as a person, and uh, it really was the right move. I, I think I always knew I was going to go to college, and I'm pretty sure my mom always knew that too. So I wasn't going to go against what she said. <laughs> uh, so, so you get drafted in '88 by the Angels, I think eighth overall. So uh, quite a step up from the 36th round. So uh, going to make more buck there, uh, I'm pretty sure. And. One of the things that's interesting ab about you is that you skipped the minors entirely to begin your career, which is extremely rare back then. It's unheard of now. It may never happen again with the environment that we have today with the way that pitchers are brought along. How did you feel about that? Obviously, I'm sure you were excited to be a major leaguer, but was that something that surprised you when you found out that you were going to break with the club in 89? I was stunned. And it worked out, you know, that I was drafted. Because of the Olympics, the draft was in June. Uh, Major League Baseball allowed, you know, all the draftees to play for the Olympic team and then report to spring training the following year. So, I, you know, the, the, the Olympics in, in were in some respects like a minor league experience, uh, you know, traveling around and playing against that level of competition. So uh, I was in a decent opportunity to go to spring training and 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 have a little bit more experience than I, you know, just being a, a June draft pick heading into professional baseball. But um, you know, I did pretty well. My my specialty back then, I had a cut fastball, and uh, it turned out to be fairly effective against wood bats, and uh, particularly against right-handers. And uh, I had a good spring. Um, we had an injury within our starting rotation. And uh, at the end of spring, our, our pitching coach, Marcel Latchman, pulled me aside. And uh, I'll never, ever forget it. He said, you know, we're not going to – I thought I was going to Midland, Texas for, to double it. And uh, he said, we're going to bring you with us to Anaheim. And, um, man, I, I just – I was at the Gene Autry Hotel in Palm Springs. And uh, it was just an absolutely – incredible moment called my parents that day and and uh 
and then set forth. You know, and, and you know, I had to kind of learn on the fly a little bit. I had to learn how to pitch at the big league level, but um, you know, I had great coaches and, and teammates, and they kind of carried me along. And um, you know, amazing. It was, I don't know, awfully fortunate. Well, you certainly held your own your rookie year, twelve and twelve, three ninety two ERA. You maybe took a little bit of a step back in nineteen ninety, but by ninety one and ninety two, you really had established yourself as one of the best left-handed pitchers in baseball. Uh, you, you won eighteen games in ninety one, sub three ERA. The following year, you only won seven games, but your ERA was actually even lower. You just weren't getting very much in the way of run support. Now, in the book, you go into some of the contract talks that were going on between the Angels and yourself, and, and your, your agent at the time was Scott Boris, who is, as you know, something of a lightning rod within the game of baseball. What are your memories of your ambitions at that time of remaining a California Angel and the way that ultimately you wind up getting traded instead to the Yankees. Yeah, that was a tough time. You know, um, I was, I, I, you know, I grew up in, in Michigan and I grew up a Tigers fan and, and Jack Morris was a guy, you know, who I looked to. Alan Trammell was a guy, Lou Whitaker, you know, guys, Detroit Tigers, they, they were, Detroit Tigers, you know, they were Detroit Tigers for a long time, and and that's the kind of player that I wanted to be. I always aspired to be a guy who, would, you know, played for one organization and, and uh, you know, was loyal to the hometown and had that connection with the community, and, and, and those are the kind of guys I admire to this day, and, um, you know, I got involved, the Angels offered me a, a, a very generous four-year contract. Uh, we entered into negotiations, or at least what I thought was negotiations, and it became a little bit of a test of wills between Whitey Herzog and and Scott Boris and, and myself. And and uh, I came home one one day from a Hawaiian vacation and, and found out that I'd been traded. You know, so um, that's just the way it works. You know, it, I I learned a lot of lessons from it. You know, I think you have to understand. You know you're in charge of your life you're in charge of your own career you have to make the decisions that you know you'll be responsible for and, and how you want to be represented and how you want to be perceived and um all that being said though i you know maybe things happen for a reason because i went to new york just the fact of having played in new york city uh is such a meaningful impactful part of my career you know i really had to kind of grow up there and, and um I, to pitch a no hitter in Yankee Stadium, to play in the pinstripes, to have a connection with that part of the country and that city, uh, is, it means a lot to me now. So um, I don't regret anything. It, it, things worked out, and and that maybe things were meant to be. They always say once a Yankee, always a Yankee. That you're a part of a pretty special fraternity just by virtue of wearing the pinstripes and. As you said, you throw a no-hitter September 4th, 1993 at Yankee Stadium. If you were drawing it up as a kid, right, if you're if you're out throwing the ball off of a brick wall or something, thinking about, okay, I'm at Yankee Stadium, I've, you know, one out in the ninth, two outs in the ninth, or whatever, no-hitter, you know, and you're, you're in the air like Mike Scott when he sees the beer cart. <laughs> That's the dream that we all dream, right? What a backdrop, and and that's one of the most iconic photos of you is obviously you in elation after the last out has been made. What's it like throwing a no-hitter at Yankee Stadium in the big leagues for all the rest of us that topped out? You know, I'm a three-time Little League All-Star, Jim, so I'm, you know, I'm, I've got some credentials, too. But for those of us who uh, don't go beyond those level of credentials and love the game so much... How can you put it into words, what it's like throwing a no-hitter at Yankee Stadium? It's very difficult to put into words. Um, the best I can describe it is if you can almost imagine that you're plugged into a, an electric socket. and You know, you just feel that charge of, of that jolt of excitement and disbelief and elation. Um because it's so, you know, it's so fickle, you know, and, and we've all, you know, I had pitched a game earlier that year against the, the White Sox, and I had a no-hitter in the eighth inning, 
and Bo Jackson kind of fisted a ball out into the outfield and, and um, you know so I knew that you can make a good pitch and the whole thing can can really wash down the drain we've seen so many games you know come heartbreakingly close to to you know a no hitter or a perfect game and then something happens where it it, it, it disappears and and so you, you you that's very tangible feeling you know and that's something you have to fight too because it's not that doesn't help you on the mound it's it's still about making pitches no matter how exciting the atmosphere is no matter how crazy the fans are going you know no matter how much you feel that countdown you know of out in your mind it's still seeing the target and, and you know and really trust and believe in and making a good pitch over and over again and, and when it does work out you know when none of those things that could go wrong actually do go wrong and your teammates mob you and a standing ovation and curtain calls in, in Yankee Stadium and for one night you know to walk around Manhattan and feel like the king of New York it's uh you know it's it's a long way from Flint Michigan uh, <laughs> it's pretty special are, are you thinking differently in the ninth inning does the thought go in your mind like okay I'm I'm not going to lose this on my on my second or third best pitch are you thinking, all right, if I'm going to lose this no-hitter, I'm going to lose it on a cutter or, or something like that? Yeah, you definitely, I mean, the old adage, you don't want to think negative thoughts because those negative things have a way of, of happening, and, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I just tried to focus this, I mean, I definitely felt every second of it. I mean, I felt what was going on. I knew what was going on. How could you not? The atmosphere in the stadium was just electric. Um but I, I just, you know, Matt Noakes was the catcher that day, and, and he was so positive and pumped up. And, you know, I could see the smile behind the mask, and I could see him, you know, emphasizing that target, you know, with the, just a little extra authority. So, you know, that energy just builds on itself. And, and that's what I remember about the ninth is is, is sort of excitement and, and not fear. You know, it's, it's a lot like the Olympic ninth inning, you know, like, Hey, make your pitches. Let's see what happens. You know, if if, if good things are meant to happen, they're going to happen. And, and, but let's make a good pitch right here. And, and um, it just it it was exciting. It wasn't fearful. It wasn't anxious. It was just letting it rip. And you didn't throw that no hitter against a weak lineup either. There were some guys in that lineup that could do some hitting. Oh yeah, they were good. <laughs> Cleveland Indians, they were one of the good up-and-coming teams, and, you know, I, I'm in my office right now as we talk, and I'm looking at a picture of it, and it's Carlos Baerga made the last out of that game, and his stats on the Yankee Stadium scoreboard, he's hitting 318, 20 home runs, 102 RBIs in the early parts of September, so um, yeah, he was just one of many, you know, Albert Albert Bell, and um, Manny Ramirez had just been called up to that team, and Kenny Lofton, and you know, down through the lineup, they were they were pretty they were pretty strong. Uh, but I loved pitching day games. I loved day games. I loved Yankee Stadium. I loved pitching in Yankee Stadium, and um, you know, it, it it just worked out that day. We hear so much about the New York media and the stories of how that environment can get inside a guy's head, and how for some players it may have really affected their performance in a bad way. Eddie Whitson is one former Yankee pitcher whose name invariably comes up when that conversation gets started. You were there for two years. When things are going a little bit less well than when you're throwing a no-hitter and and you're the toast of the town, how tough is it being a Yankee? It's it's tough. The scrutiny's there. I mean, it's it's different. And one of the things I find fascinating now about baseball and, and probably all the professional sports is how different the experience can be. You know, and, and it all comes down to you know the draft or you know the whim of a GM and, and they trade you. You know, I I, I think of uh, I don't know how closely their stats compare, but I bet you they're not far off. Is is uh, a guy like Robin Young. Um, you know, who played his entire career in Milwaukee and, and, and was just a phenomenal player, you know, a great player. Uh, and, and Derek Jeter, you know, Derek mm-hmm. Jeter played in New York. And, 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 and the experience, obviously, Jeter, you know, is a you know, star guy. But uh, in terms of just playing, 
you know, Robin Yount, I don't know where he lived, but I imagine he had a home somewhere just outside of Milwaukee and would drive on a, you know, quiet highway at night home and, and spend time, you know, in a nice house with a yard, maybe go fishing or whatever. And uh, just so different than, than the life that you live as a Yankee, you know, and uh, the scrutiny is, is, is intense. You know, the media is there. Every little thing that you do is, is analyzed, uh, not by one newspaper, but by four. You know, talked about by five different TV stations, and and uh, you know, you take the good with the bad. If you if you can't be tough enough to process that in the right way, it can have the potential to eat you up. After '94, of course, the strike year, abbreviated season. You wind up signing with the White Sox. Were there any other teams that uh, were in serious consideration at that time? How did you settle on the Sox? I, I was talking a little bit with a couple other teams, um, uh, actually the Indians a little bit, and um, and the White Sox were a great opportunity for me to sort of, you know, I had a couple kind of disappointing years in New York, and I was looking to sort of get myself, you know, back together as a pitcher, you know, professionally and personally, and, and um, you know, I... The White Sox called me up. My good friend Kirk McCaskill was was in the starting rotation for the White Sox, and uh, he had a spot in the rotation. And you know, he and and I were very good friends with Robin Ventura, the third baseman for the White Sox. And, and they went to the GM and, and and had him call me and ask if I was interested. And and uh, from there, I ended up signing with the White Sox. And, and the thing about Kirk is, that, you know, I essentially took his spot in the starting in the starting rotation, and, and he went out to the bullpen. Um, you know, he just that was. I always think about that in terms of friendship and, and 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 going back to Chicago. I really loved playing in Chicago. I loved playing and I lived in downtown. My wife and I had a great time, and um, one of my very favorite places to play, and one of my very favorite towns. And the White Sox were a great team to play for. Um, great staff great coaches and good friends and it was a perfect move for me at the time later on in your career you were dealing with some velocity loss which is uh pretty common pitchers deal with that but your velocity it tapered off quite a bit and i i want to say it was correct me if i'm wrong but i want to say it was rick peterson who uh made the observation that you might have been a little, you looked like you were gun shy in terms of defending yourself on a possible line drive back through the box. You felt like you were, were stopping short a little bit and that it was affecting your velocity. And, and you, go into, you go on in the book to talk about a liner that uh, you took off the leg from, I believe it was Frank Thomas. And you said the bruise went basically all the way down your leg. That's something that has always fascinated me. I'm writing a book about baseball in the 1970s, and I, I talk to hitters about Nolan Ryan or J.R. Richard or, or, or some of these guys that were really fearsome fastball pitchers uh, of that era. But one thing that we sometimes don't talk about is you guys on the mound are very vulnerable because that ball, if it's hit right, especially by a guy like Frank Thomas, it's coming back at you with more velocity than it had on its way to the plate how much can that affect a pitcher knowing that you're you know you're out there on an island and if the ball's hit just right there's not a heck of a lot you can really do about it it's you know it's scary i think i stopped ha- having those dreams just a couple years ago <laughs> you know where you let go of the ball and the ball comes back at you and, and of course out here in california matt shoemaker had that uh, horrifying incident last the end of last year thank god he know everything was all right um but you're only you know you're 55 feet away you know by the time you finish your you know your your pitch and and um you know frank hit a ball that i really never even saw it and you know until it hit me it hit me in the thigh thank goodness but yeah i mean i I, you know i think rick did have a good point I, i obviously i had to pitch with the glove on my right hand and then when I finish the pitch, be able to, to put it back on. And, and um, you know, I think his point was that I wasn't getting a complete follow through, that maybe I was trying to get to that glove transition just a little too quickly. Working with Rick was great. You know, I think that really helped me. If, if, 
you know, I, I started really trying to concentrate on finishing pitches. And, and uh, Rick was funny. We were having that conversation at spring training, and he said, hey, you know, what do you think? He said, you know, let's just finish the pitch. And I kind of looked at him, and he said, yeah, you know, because you want to have more on the ball anyway, the less likely they are to hit it back at you hard if it's a good pitch. And two, you know, if the guy hits it off your forehead and you die, you're going to go straight to the Hall of Fame anyway. <laughs> So I said, all right, that's, that's our plan then. You know, one, you know either going to be good or die. Uh, no, baseball has its own gallows humor and, and the coaches. And, but, yeah, I really enjoyed working with Rick there. He was, he was a tremendous pitching coach and, and uh, really got into the mental side of the game with him. And, um, you know, actually I pitched really well in Chicago, and a lot of it had to do with those discussions. One of the themes that runs deeply through the book is the conflict that you experienced through the years between wanting to be accepted as just another ball player, a good ball player, recognized as just a very good pitcher, and the always present fact that you you were never going to be seen as just another ball player due to your physical circumstances. And And you tell some stories in the book that are just you know some of them really brought a tear to my eye of all of the parents and children that would write letters and and seek you out and for whom you were a, a role model even though that's not something that you know you went out and and tried to take on for yourself but it seems like you always accepted that responsibility even though it's as though that responsibility chose you but it's such a part of your legacy how do you feel as as you look back on your career that that idea that as much as you just want to be recognized as Jim Abbott the damn good pitcher there was always that other factor and that in some ways, I think, higher calling that was being made of you at the same time. It was a process. I lo- it, you know, and I've had a chance to meet so many kids and, you know, facing similar challenges as mine, missing a hand or part of an arm. And, 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 and there are a lot of similarities. You know, when I meet kids like that, I, I really see big parts of myself and my personality and, and I, I don't have any doubt that that goes a long way towards shaping your identity you know and everybody deals with it a little bit differently some people are angry some people you know are accepting some people are more comfortable you know I'm I wasn't I wasn't one of those kids who was really comfortable I met I know kids who are missing a hand you know who are unabashed in their willingness to shake your hand with you know their their missing hand um I could never do that. You know, I was more accommodating. I, I wanted to, you know, I have, I have 30 different ways of shaking people's hand with my left hand, no matter what, what hand right. they extend. And and so um, baseball and sports for me growing up were my way of fighting back. You know, they were my way of, of, of gaining acceptance and, and being a part of a team and, and feeling better about myself. And, and, um, and, and that, that, it, it became a need almost, you know, more than a want. It was a need to be successful. You know, I, I, I pushed, I had an ambition and a drive that wasn't very pretty at times. You know, I, I, I took losing too hard. Um, you know, winning only meant a, 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 a hunger for more winning. And, and, and that's kind of what it was about. That's, that's what drove me. And I'm thankful for that now. Um, but as I grew older, uh, I became, I guess, uh, you know the cliche. I became more comfortable in my skin, and, and I started to see, um, you know, who I was beyond the baseball field. And and in a lot of ways, I don't want to sound you know too self-important, but I saw the impact you know that that baseball can have on people's lives, and that a story like mine can have on people's lives. Of you know, hey, look at there's somebody with one hand who who could play and, and, and be good and not just not just make it but but be good and and so um, all of that was a process it took time there was a lot of sorting out you know and it really honestly wasn't until after my career was over uh, that I really was starting to put the pieces into place and 
you know people approached me to write a book when I was playing in the major leagues and I'm so thankful that I didn't do that and um, I waited a long time till after my career was over to do that and I think most of the reason is because I was sorting through so many of those feelings and and really trying to put things in a decent perspective I know you've been asked through the years countless times about the mechanics and the process of how you developed your workarounds for some of these things that you knew were going to pose an extra challenge for you as compared to the ordinary guy in terms of fielding your position and and uh, you know transferring the glove after every delivery and fielding bunts and all that kind of thing but but one thing that is mentioned in the book that I had never considered until I read your book was the fact that you couldn't conceal your grip ever out there. How much of a disadvantage was that, do you think, the fact that you didn't have that most basic of pitcher defenses, which is forming your grip inside your glove? That's not an excuse. It just sort of, it, it was it was what it was. And, and uh, it was something that I worked in. I never even thought about it. And I was an amateur player very much. Um, but as you know, the major league game is scouted so thoroughly, and you know, you run up against big league guys who they can find the slightest little, you know, uh, tip, and and they'll they'll know what your pitches are, you know. And you have first base coaches and third base coaches, and, and uh, if you think anybody's feeling sorry for you in the big leagues, it's, <laughs> they don't. You know, they're everyone's trying to win, and and so. You know, in my wind-up, I held the ball behind my glove so that the hitter couldn't see it. Uh, but the third-base coaches and the first-base coaches, if, if they were trying, could could see if I set my grip too early. Um, so I had to kind of keep twirling the ball in my hand and never really truly set my grip until um, later in my wind-up when, when, when it was a little bit too late you know, to tip the pitch off. And then the stretch, I just hit the ball behind my glove too. So um, I don't know that it affected me. I, you know, I, I think early in my career, I really only had, you know, three pitches and they were all kind of off the same grip, fastball, cut fastball, slider, curveball. Um, later in my career, um, you know, when I tried to develop a, a changeup, um, you know, not being able to set that was a little bit of an impediment. You know, it was it was not to be able to go to the, maybe that circle change grip um, or, you know, a split finger something, you know, where you dig in a little bit more. So it's a constant battle with those hitters, you know. you got to go up against guys like, uh, you know, Paul Molitor and, and Joe Carter and, and, and that group, man. They could pick up anything, anything. So, you know, you have to be so diligent to hide those pitches and, uh, for me, there was just a, just a tiny bit le- extra level of challenge in that effort. How long did it take as you were making your, your way up through prep ball, college ball, playing internationally, representing the United States, and, and obviously into your MLB career? How long did it take for people to realize that bunning on you really wasn't going to be a worthwhile endeavor for them? You know, it usually took a little bit. There was always, you know, whatever new league I went to, there was always a little bit of a challenge there. And, and uh, <clears throat> man, I worked hard at that, though. I really uh, I really worked hard on my fielding. I remember at the University of Michigan, you know, we had, to, we had to practice indoors for a lot of our preseason. So, you know, I just would be on that AstroTurf in the football building just fielding bunts. Uh, you know, working on transitions and working on the bunt down the third baseline, you know, with runners on first and second. Um, I really took a lot of pride in my fielding. I, I did not want to let that become a liability. And, and um, you know, I was proud. I, I feel like I, I held my own defensively out there. And, and, uh, and um, you know, it, 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 a lot of fielding is just effort. You know, that's just working at it. You can, you can make yourself a good fielder. And, and I really tried hard to do that. One of my favorite parts of the book is late in your career, when you, you work your way up through the White Sox system to get back to the big leagues, ultimately getting back to Chicago late in the year and, and going 5-0. and But you went through basically every level that year. You, you went to A-ball, you went to advanced A-ball, you went to double-A, you went to triple-A. You climbed the entire ladder during that season, which I think you could almost write a book about that season, and it would probably be fascinating. 
what was that experience like as a guy who had had success in the major leagues and who initially had skipped the minor leagues the the first time around to to go back and ride the bus around with guys that were younger than yourself and and climb all the way up the chain during that season well that was a fascinating that you're right fascinating is a good word and and i was you know 30 years old and um in the minor leagues the white Sox were nice enough to give me a chance to pitch um they sent me to Hickory, North Carolina. <laughs> I became a Hickory crawdad, um, and it started a journey back up. You know, hope to, I don't know where I thought I was going. You know, but it was going to start there, and um, and I did. I got a chance to appreciate the game. You know, I sat in these dingy little clubhouses and these minor league parks and on metal folding chairs and guys sharing lockers and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and. and <laughs> You know, and, and I'd look up on TV and I'd see my friends, you know, playing in, in Camden Yards and <laughs> in Angel Stadium, and, and and God, it was lonely, and I felt a long way away. And but I, I, I got to see the game from an entirely different perspective. You know, I got a chance to see the eagerness and the yearning in, in young guys and how badly they wanted it. Uh, guys coming from you know different countries and different cultures. And, you know, the minor leagues are an incredibly fun time you know, in your life. And, um, but it's, it, there's, you know, it's competitive, you know, there's, it's, it's dog eat dog, man. People are trying to get there and they'll do anything to get there. And, 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 um, honestly, that's, I know it sounds naive, but it's one of the first times I actually became kind of aware of, of guys who were, you know, testing steroids and, and things like that, because in the minor leagues, you can't keep it a secret as much. Big leagues, you can go home, you know, to your to a doctor, you go home to your house and your family, and, and you know it's a job. You know these guys in the minor leagues are living together, you know, four or five to a room, and, and there's no secrets. You know, and um, I became aware a lot more of, of of seeing, you know, what it took to get to AAA. You know, what it took to get to to, to the major leagues, and, and um, it was tough. You know, it, those long bus rides. The, the, crappy hotels um you know the ballparks and, you know no no bullpen catchers you know <laughs> throwing to your pitching coach i mean there, you know a lot of it is romanticized and it is it's great but you know it, it's um the minor leagues are there's a reason you know everyone's trying to get to the big leagues speaking of steroids your, your career is playing out uh, certainly at least the the latter half of your career probably is intersecting with what people call the steroid era did you have suspicions as your career went on like because you're you're obviously out there out there pitching and are, are you thinking to yourself at times like geez you know these guys are these guys are looking pretty big <laughs> in the batter's box compared to you know what it was 10 years ago yeah i started to you know um it, it was just the thing about it was when you pitch enough baseball, you, you, you give up a you give up a home run. You kind of know when it's a home run. I mean, when it comes off the bat, you kind of go, okay, I, you know, that's an out. I mean, that's a fly ball, or you know, that's a that's a it's a home run. That, that one's gone. Um, but it, it started to kind of get you got less and less sure you know because guys guys would miss hit the ball and it'd still go 395 feet you know it may not be in the upper deck i mean yeah there were all those prodigious home runs and, and whatever um but you know guys could miss it and still have it go over the center field fence that's when that's when you kind of said man when something's going on um and you know honestly i i i, I was a bit naive I didn't realize, uh, even on some of the teams that I played on, how prevalent it was, uh, how much guys were doing it, and um, you know, it's a bummer. It, it's, um, I'm, you know, I needed four or five miles an hour on my fastball at the end of my career. Uh, I'm really, really glad no one offered it to me because I, I don't know how tempted I would have been to, see, you know, I, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to retire. You know, I wanted to stay in the game. And uh, if someone told me a cream or, uh, you know, something might help me to get that velocity back and I can hang on to my livelihood and the only thing I've ever known my whole life, uh, I can't 
I can't pass judgment. I don't know that I would have been strong enough to say no, uh, but I was never offered it, and so in turn, you know, I never did it. I appreciate the honesty because I, I've often thought that it's, it's human nature. Sometimes people talk about the steroid era as though somehow the human condition nosedive just during that generation. And I'm thinking to myself, if it had been the 20s or the 50s or the 60s, guys would have experimented with this stuff. Because as you're saying, trying to come up through the minor leagues and if something like that is the difference, particularly when you're young and you know you kind of feel like you're bulletproof when you're in your 20s. I know that I feel more vulnerable in my mid-40s than I did at that time. And, and there's big money in the game, obviously, as well. So it seems to me that it was something that became a part of the culture of the game, and and it became kind of easy for guys to justify it. Wouldn't you agree? I totally agree. And, and, and I don't think, you know, I think it was a culmination as much as anything. It didn't, you know, like you mentioned, the different eras of the game. There may not have been steroids per se, um, but there were other, uh, I guess what you'd call, performance enhancing you know materials sure. that people were using and that's the, that's i mean to anybody will tell you that's the culture of the game you know i sat next to guys you know as i watched as they you know glued sandpaper into their glove and you know and 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 watched guys cork bats and and it, it was it's Anybody, you know, and it was almost the wild, wild west. You know, people were doing anything, and so, you know, in, under those conditions, it's not that far off to to see that you know when science sort of catches up, and you know, people say, hey, there's another way to get an advantage. Uh, well, you know, the temptation's there, the money's there. Um, you know, one of the hardest things in the world is to be released from a team. You know. And, and to pack your bag and say goodbye to your teammates. And you don't know if you're ever going to play again. You don't know if you're going to get a job. You don't know, is this it? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And it's not surprising to me at all that people would, would do anything in their power to not let that happen. You mentioned how hard it is to let go of something that you love and something that's been such a huge part of your life. And And let's face it, the thing in the world that that you do best, really, I mean, in terms of being a world-class performer, which is so incredibly difficult. It's difficult to to make it to the major leagues for one day, much less succeed in the major leagues taking the ball every fifth day and, and to do it for a number of years and, and to have the success that you had. And, and, and one of the things that I'm always interested in when I speak with athletes is what do you go through psychologically and emotionally when you realize, I think you were 31 your last season in the big leagues. I, I became a college professor when I was 32 and I was like a young teacher. I was the young, cool professor. You know, you're just, you're just starting out. I'm 32. I'm just beginning. What's it like? Because people in ordinary professions can't relate to what it's like to be 31 years old, which is so young and yet, that thing that you have excelled at is not going to be there for you anymore. That's a, you know, it's a really great question. You're right. You are so young. And I remember I was I was 21 in the big leagues, and we had Bert Blylevin on the team. And, and Bert, I think, you know, I thought Bert was ancient. I thought he was so <laughs> old. You know, and he was like 38. <laughs> you know, he may have been 40. I don't know, but he, you know, he wasn't old at all. He's he, a lot younger than I am today. And 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 uh, you know, it, you're right. There's such a skewed perception of that, and and it's very very difficult to, to transition into something meaningful and impactful. It's scary. You know, there's grief to it. I, I know it sounds dramatic, but there is grief to it. It's, it's like losing something that meant an awful lot to you, picking up the pieces and, and sort of making sense of it all and, and, and finding something after the game is, is not an easy transition. And, and there's not a whole lot of help in doing it. You know what I mean? I mean, I don't think you're, you're kind of all of a sudden cast out into this world and you have your family and you have some friends and, um, but professionally, you know, the game moves on. You watch the game 
you know, every day on TV, you see your friends keep playing and, and, uh, and, and, and poof, you know, it's just not there anymore. So, um, I don't know. I, str- I struggled with it just because I was so young and, and, um, it took me a few years to kind of get on my feet and, and, and really come to terms with being proud of my career. Um, and knowing that I, you know, may have made a few mistakes here and there, but I gave it everything I absolutely could. And, um, and then I was fortunate to have, you know, the opportunity to do some things post baseball that that were a continuation of the things I was doing in the game. You know, some mentorship types of things and, and speaking and helpfully trying to motivate people. And, and and so that gave me a purpose, and and then I was able to make that transition. It's so interesting what you said about Blylevin being 38 and you're thinking of him as this old guy because I just thought the other day, Nolan Ryan was 44 when he threw his seventh no-hitter. And I always thought my entire life, man, wow, 44, throwing heat, no-hitter. And I thought I literally had this thought the other day, a couple of days ago, I thought to myself, I'm 45. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I th- or Jack Nicholas winning the Masters when he's forty six, and I remember thinking at the time watching that on TV when I'm fourteen or whatever, like, wow, forty six years old, like they just rolled him in from a hospice or something, you know. <laughs> Walker, yeah. yeah, and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to be 46. It 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 slips up on you, but you, but as you said, it, it skews your perception, because athletics are such a unique endeavor compared to most other things in life. It's just a different thing, and you know, Bert was old by baseball standards. By baseball standards, he was, and and, and uh, you know, I go to spring training uh, every now and again with the Angels, and I look around the locker room. They're just kids, you know. They're just kids, particularly when you know the forty-man roster is in there, and they got the spring training invitees, and, and you look around, and they're just, uh, you know, they're so young, and there's you know so much to learn. And God, Nolan Ryan, seventy years old, and I read a stat where he pitched from he was nineteen years old and pitched till he was forty-four or forty-five somewhere. It's just, it's just amazing, astounding his career. Crazy. And he was 46 at the yeah, end. It's just, it's unfathomable. It's difficult to compare that guy to anybody because back in, I think it was 1974, he had a game where he walked 10 and struck out 19. <laughs> and the pitch count, and I don't know how credible this is, but the number that floats around is that he threw 235 pitches that night. Wow. Now, where do you stand on that, by the way? I've just got to ask you that as a pitcher. The game has changed so much. If I was going to think of the thing that has changed the most in the game over the past 15, 20 years, I don't know if it's the correct answer, but one of the first things that would come to my mind is the decrease in innings pitched from starting pitchers. And I know that that's been the trajectory of the game for a long time, but we're getting to the point now where entire teams are going the entire season and having maybe one or two complete games, in some cases none, and teams are carrying 13, in some cases 14 pitchers on the active roster. Uh, How do you feel about that just as a pitcher? How much of that is just sound strategy and the direction that it's going, and I'm the old guy who's saying, hey, you kids, get off my lawn, and how much of it is maybe we've gone a little too far? Because I was looking, I think it was last night's game, The Tampa Bay Rays, they used eight guys in the game. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, this isn't the seventh game of the World Series, but it's becoming common. Where where, where do you stand on the bullpens and sort of this constant parade of guys that are coming in to get a couple of outs and get pulled for the next guy who's coming in? You're right. There's a fine line between, well, in my day, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but I do think that there is some, I think one of the ways that it's starting to manifest itself is all these injuries. Um, I I don't see the sense in monitoring the pitches the way they do these days, in innings pitched the way they do these days. 
and this is anecdotal. I have nothing scientific. I'm sure there's GMs out there who who have the analytics down to the science right. you know, about what what is and what isn't. But I think um, I think that you're starting to see this all-out pitching. You know, you're starting to see starters throw every pitch as hard as they can. You know, velocity is 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 king. And, and certainly that happens with relief pitchers, and, 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 and I have no doubt that it's effective. It's got it's got to be harder to hit in today's game than it was in the years past because you're facing a guy in the sixth, seventh inning. You know, new guys coming in throwing 96, 97 miles an hour. Um, but you wonder, you know, how long you know a pitcher can sustain himself doing that. You know, so. On that part of it, I, I'm a little worried. You know, I agree 100% with John Smoltz when he talks about it. it's like trying to hit a golf ball as far as you can every single time you swing the club. I mean, that's just that's not the way that the game is played. You're standing out of pitch, and if if you're getting yanked out of there in the fifth inning, and you're not familiar what it's like to be in the seventh inning and, and be a little tired and you know have to locate and, and maybe not pitch for the strikeout, but you know pitch to contact. You know, going for ground ball and, and or, you know, something that's pitching. You know, and, and I hope that art doesn't get completely lost. You know, uh, there's a certain interchangeableness that comes along with the analytics of the game that, just personally, it kind of makes me uncomfortable. You know, it's just like, well, we'll just put another person in there. See, you nailed it for me because at least this is the way that I perceive it. Almost every major league team almost has this fleet of stormtroopers in a way. It's kind of like the names change, but uh, I don't know who this guy is. He, he he threw 45 innings last year for the Diamondbacks or whatever, and he's, he's, he's not going to last in the game probably a long time, but he can throw real hard. You know, he's throwing 97. And when I was a kid, if you threw 97... You were you were on the cusp of being legendary, Goose Gossage and guys like that. Now it's like every team has two or three guys in their bullpen that are that are either throwing that hard or who are knocking on the door of it. And it is it's sort of this faceless parade of guys that are going to come in and just air it out for fifteen or twenty pitches. Yep, that's the game now, and, and you know it plays into the speed of the speed of the game. I mean, that's one thing nobody will talk about. You know, we're going to do all these different things to speed up the game, but, you know, you and you have eight pitching changes. You know, that's a long time. <laughs> probably takes a half hour in itself just to, right. uh, coming out and taking the pitcher out and doing all that. But at least so, we got rid of the intentional walk. We saved those. Yeah, we yeah, saved we those. got rid of that, yeah. <laughs> all right, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave you with this, Jim. Most pitchers that I talk to like to talk hitting. And you spent most of your career in the American League, so you didn't really get that opportunity. But you wound up in Milwaukee late in your career, and you got some trips to the plate. Tell me a little bit about your hitting exploits. Well, that might be another hour-long podcast. <laughs> <that we, you know, laughs> there I was, you know. No, I, you know, I got I, I got to uh, Milwaukee, and, and I like swinging the bat. I, I really did. I was I thought of myself as a pretty good hitter in high school, and. Uh, had some success, and then you know I started seeing some curveballs, and I didn't have as much success as I used to. But um, but it was hard, you know. Hitting is hard, and and um, I you know some of that velocity, you just it, it just staggered me, you know how how little amount of time you have to make a decision, and you know, and then you add in movement, you add in you know breaking balls, and and. I had a chance to face Todd Stottlemyre one night. You know, God, his ball was just sinking away. And then faced Maddox one night. And he threw me three straight strikes that I thought were the same pitch. And one was a fastball, one was a changeup, and the other one was a curveball. You know, it's 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 hard. But um, I did squeeze out a couple base hits off of the same pitcher, John Lieber. Uh, in Milwaukee, and, and one of my favorite moments in Wrigley Field got a base hit. And, uh, man, you feel a part of the game when you're hitting, you know, and you get on base and you're running the bases, and, and you know, you drove in a run. And, you know, you feel like a baseball player. <laughs> you feel like, you know, it kind of takes you back to little league almost. Like, hey, this is this is neat. This is fun out here. So, where do you stand on the on the DH debate? 
because we're still having it. Here we are 45 years practically in on this, and people still get angry when they debate uh, which side they believe in. It's almost like arguing uh, politics or religion uh, with, with people. Uh, where do you come down? I'm, you know, I grew up with it, so I'm, I'm, I, I, I like it. You know, I don't have any problem with the DH. I kind of like the fact that um, the leagues are split on it. You know, that there's one league that doesn't, one league that doesn't. And, and you know, I, I don't have that long of an experience in the National League. Um, I think it's it, there's it's a more obvious, clearly a more strategic league, and you know where how you pitch to one guy because you got the pitcher coming up behind him is is uh, it, it, it does make it an entirely different game. And the American League is is rough. You know, you get that one extra hitter who's usually one of the best hitters in the team. Um, I certainly would rather face the pitcher than uh, than Edgar Martinez. But you know, I, I don't have a. It's kind of what I grew up with. I'm used to it, and, and I don't have a you know a really strong feeling either way I, I it's pretty exciting to see some of these guys play I mean I guess I'd rather see you know Edgar Martinez play if I was going to pay and go to the ballpark than, than watch some of these pitchers you know flail away well they don't even get to hit in the minors now that's the bad part yeah yeah it's 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 really kind of futile although it's fun watching you know Madison Baumgartner or somebody like that who can actually hit uh, that makes it incredibly exciting, but um, I, I would, yeah, if I was paying to go to the ballpark, I mean, I'd rather watch Albert Pujols hit than, than um, you know, a, a pitcher who can't. Now, I will make an exception for Bartolo Colon. That is must-see TV <laughs> when he bats. <laughs> it's, it's good TV no matter what, no matter what happens. Well, Jim, man, I can't thank you enough. I greatly appreciate you following at Super 70 Sports and the, the nice things that you had to say. And I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and sharing some of these stories and reflections on your career with us. Well, I was looking forward to it. I just know from uh, your tweets that we look at the game and look at things kind of similarly. And, and I was looking forward to the chance to meet you and talk about the game. It's been very enjoyable, and uh, I, I'll, I'll be following along, as they say. I wish you the best. Maybe sometime down the road we'll do it again. Sounds good. My thanks to Jim Abbott, who in addition to being a heck of a pitcher, is just one of the nicest guys that you'd ever want to meet. And I don't know about you, but I can tell you, the next time that I see a beer cart on a golf course, I'm going to be thinking of Mike Scott. Next week, we've got another good one lined up for you. My guest is the winning quarterback of Super Bowl 17 and the 1983 NFL Most Valuable Player. Joe Theismann will join me for some good old-fashioned football talk. You know, believe it or not, Joe is the first NFL guy who has ever guested on this show. And it's high time that we talk some pigskin. So I'll be talking with Joe about his days at Notre Dame, the three years he spent in the Canadian Football League at the beginning of his professional career. We'll talk about Super Bowl 17 and 18. We'll discuss his career-ending injury, which, of course, everyone remembers at the hands of Lawrence Taylor. And we'll talk about his thoughts on the game as it's played today. And I'll ask Joe where he sees the NFL's future in the coming years. So tune in next week when Joe Theismann will be my guest. I'm Ricky Cobb reminding you to never miss an episode of the Super 70 Sports Podcast.